you're in touch with WPKN in Bridgeport. Hello, what's your point? You know, I would be remiss if I didn't mention, Garnett, the important role that you're playing on WPKN in not simply independent journalism, but making sure voices get out. The reality is that as we talk about social media and criticism and hashtags, conversation, like deep dialogue about these issues is really what we're going to need if we're going to ever get to that point of reimagination. So I just wanted to, to thank you. You know, we've got a list for the revolution, um, and that revolution really is going to uh, have to be one that allows us to, to conquer these inequalities and move forward as, as, a, as a nation as a whole, but also as a community united. Okay, thank you so much. is very important for the continuation and maintenance of a democracy. One should be tolerant of all views different to yours. It is much better to use words to settle differences than with weapons. You see, weapons destroy human beings. When all these differing views are put together, a consensus should be found to move the nation forward together for one common cause. At the end of an argument, we may disagree, but not become disagreeable. Hello, good morning, and welcome to this Black History Month, a broadcast of uh, What's Your Point here on WPKN Radio. I am Garnet Anklander. Let me start out with my thought for today. A message to you fools, oh, hear the words of the wise. How long we are to live a life of hate and despise. So many stood for love and even laid down their lives. Unity is bliss. Stop the prejudice. As long as there is injustice, there will be a protest. A human rights denied creates a civil unrest. A segregated country is a nation unblessed. Jim Crow laws full of flaw. Verse 2 of the reggae song called Justice in Gina by the reggae band Steel Pulse from their reggae Grammy-nominated album, Mass Manipulation. Uh, uh, my guest for today is uh, very special, and I have a long introduction here, but just bear with me. Deidre Farmer-Pellman is a legal strategist, former adjunct law professor and human rights activist. In 2002, she filed a landmark class action lawsuit for slave reparations against a blue chip corporation. Former Pellman is credited with popularizing the slave reparations movement through her groundbreaking research exposing corporate complicity in slavery. 
In January of 2000, she exposed Aetna Incorporated for their writing policies on the lives of enslaved Africans with slaveholders as the beneficiaries in the 1800s. Her research linking J.P. Morgan Chase Bank to slavery led to the company making a public apology in January 2005 and committed to pay $5 million in reparations over the next five years in college uh, scholarships to slave descendants residing in Louisiana. A few other companies followed with nominal reparations payments. Farmer Pellman earned her undergraduate degree in political science at the City University of New York, Brooklyn College in 1988. She completed her master's degree specializing in lobbying and political campaign management at the George Washington University in Washington, D.C. in 1995. And she earned her Juris Doctorate degree from the New England School of Law in Boston, Massachusetts in 1999. A law student, as a law student, uh, she studied international uh, trade law and comparative constitutional law at the University of Nairobi Faculty of Law in Nairobi, Kenya in East Africa in 1996. She she served as adjunct professor of law at Southern New England School of Law, is founder and executive director of the Restitution Group and co-chair of the Organization for Tribal Unity, OTU, that unites families separated by the transatlantic slave trade. Deirdre Farmer Pellman, welcome to What's Your Point on this penultimate day of Black History Month. Thank you so much. I um, am honored to be here. I appreciate this invitation. Okay. (laughs) Yes, I'm happy to have you. And uh, indeed, uh, on the show today, it's a case for reparations. But let us start off with what took place on Friday. Last Friday, we saw uh, President Joseph Biden nominated Washington, D.C. Circuit Court Judge Kitanji Brown-Jackson to the soon-to-be-vacant seat Associate Justice on the United States Supreme Court. If Judge uh, Brown-Jackson is confirmed by the United States Senate, she would be the first black woman in the over 200 years of the court's existence to serve on it. Your thoughts on this historic occasion? Uh, this is wonderful news. Um, I'm, I'm uh, delighted to see that finally there will be a black woman joining the court. There have been black women judges in this country for probably a uh, hundred years now, but none of them considered for this, uh, this, this level of service. And uh, Justice um, Jackson Brown has impeccable credentials. Uh, she serves now in one of the highest courts in the country, one of the toughest courts. Uh, she dreamed of, of, of serving as a judge and um, really structured her whole life toward this kind of, uh, le- this level of service. And let me just say that out of 115 justices, uh, Supreme Court justices in the history of this country, 108 of them have been white men. So it's refreshing to have a little bit more diversity on the court, finally. 
So it tells you how backward this country is. What does it say to you as a black woman in this country that it took so long for a black woman even to be nominated to serve in the highest court in this land? Your thoughts? Well, you know, the thing that I find fascinating is if you look in the homes of of many people across this nation, you're going to see black women running them in some capacity anyway, whether it be uh, through some kind of uh, service, uh, caring for a home or caring for someone's child or caring for their own families. So, you know, most folks know black women are capable. And and now it's it finally reached a point where they're recognizing that we need to get the credit and, and have the, the, uh, the, the actual roles, the, the professional uh, roles that we qualified for. Everyone knows a black woman is judging every day, making major decisions in the lives of everyone. So this is, um, this is fitting. This is fitting. So for the listener who may not know, when you speak of reparations for slavery, what are you speaking of? Reparations is uh, essentially repair. It is uh, 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 what, whatever it takes to repair a people who have been injured or damaged by uh, actions that have taken place. In the case of um, slavery reparations, and that's specifically what I focus on, reparations related to the enslavement of African-Americans or, or, or people enslaved in the United States, we're talking about whatever it takes to repair the injuries that we suffer from, from uh, due to the enslavement of our ancestors. In addition to that, there's something that I talk about, and that is restitution, which is a, a form of reparations. And that is whether or not you actually feel that you suffer from an injury. There is a group of people out here or entities who have been unjustly enriched by actions that they engaged in that were immoral uh, and they have, uh, they are unjustly enriched and they should not be able to benefit from this, their, their immoral activities. And so I focus on corporations that played a role in slavery that are still in existence today uh, that have uh, some of them a trillion dollar entities. Uh, they should not be able to retain the, uh, the fruit of labor's, uh, that were stolen from people who were kidnapped, uh, forced to breed, beaten into submission, held in, in bondage for centuries, and then uh, freed without anything to build them li- their lives on. And so, uh, once again, that's a, while folks may not necessarily see that they have uh, some kind of injury, we're focusing also on entities who are unjustly enriched and should not be able to keep the wealth. And we'll get to your restitution work later on in the show. Uh, you're, you're listening to What's Your Point on WPKN Radio. My guest is Deidre, Deidre Farmer-Pellman, legal strategist, founder and executive director of the Restitution Study Group and co-chair of the Organization of Tribal Unity, OTU, an institution that unites families separated by the transatlantic slave trade. I am Garnet Ankle. And uh, some time ago, you discovered your ancestors were sold into slavery in South Carolina. Please tell us the story of your mission to seek reparations, how it began in that African burial ground, and your decision to apply to law school to assist you in the process. Sure. Growing up um, 
in, in New York City, uh, we actually lived in a very racist community. The neighborhood was called Bensonhurst. So we were constantly attacked and, you know, being called the N-word was a, a daily thing for, for me and my sisters. Um, my, we often would seek refuge at my grandfather's house in Queens. And, and um, you know, we would reflect on many different injustices. And, and one of the things that my grandfather would always say, and they still owe us our 40 acres and a mule. And um, as I grew up, I, I, I wondered exactly what that was. And I, I learned that, you know, there was actually a promise to emancipated enslaved Africans that they should get 40 acres and a mule. And in South Carolina, some folks actually did get some land, and they still have it. There's a handful of them. But for most of uh, the, the newly freed uh, Africans, uh, uh, enslaved, formerly enslaved Africans, that, that whatever might have been given to them was taken away. And so um, there was that seed that was planted in my head about, you know, what we should have gotten, but we never did get. Um, I had the opportunity to uh, assist in an, in, 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 a, in an effort to expose a burial ground that had been uncovered on Wall Street. Um, there was a parking pavilion for a federal office building that was going to be built on this plot of land that had never been built on before. And uh, when the uh, construction workers dug into the ground, they discovered that there were still remains from an African burial ground from the 1700s. Something like 200,000, I'm sorry, 20,000 burials were in that ground. And um, I was invited in uh, to help with media, uh, to do an event that would involve drummers. And, um, and so I had the opportunity to visit the remains and was mortified. Uh, there, were, there were some remains where the mouths were stretched open wide as if they died, if the, if the Africans died screaming. Now, they knew these people were uh, Africans because they knew from, from the record, from, from old maps, that this was the old Negro burial, burying ground is what it was called. It was just outside the wall of Wall Street. Um, so they knew that the burial ground would have been there. But in addition to that, the, the, uh, the skeleton, skeletons, some of them had tribal markings on the teeth. Some of them had African waist beads um, within the, the, uh, the remains. And um, it was just a fascinating and horrifying experience for me. And I, I've, I felt compelled at that point uh, to go to law school and build a case for Sorry, reparations. Do you wish to say how old were you at that time? Oh my, I might have, I must have been about 27, 28, somewhere around that age. Okay. <laughs> okay. Um, and I was, I was working at that time as a, uh, as a, uh, in a press office. Um, uh, yeah. And, and to be, to be specific, I worked for the department of health. So, um, and that office was about a block away from the burial ground. I passed, I would pass by that burial ground every day and, and had no idea. But, um, in any case, I went to law school, and my uh, my what I thought I would be doing is developing a case to focus on the federal government. But uh, there was a decision at that time that was by this point it was ninety four, ninety five. Uh, there was a decision uh, from a California court uh, uh, that uh, that the federal government would have to 
waive its sovereign immunity in order for people to sue it for reparations. And so there was a case dismissed that had been filed by people who filed without a lawyer. They were filing pro se. So I, I thought to myself, who else owes us reparations? And I began to look into private estates uh, and um, corporations. In fact, there was some talk in the news at that time about Holocaust cases that focused on corporations. And um, although their situation was slightly different, they had some living uh, descendants um, some, not descendants, but they had some people who ha- were still Holocaust survivors that were still alive. Um, I recognized that there might still be some arguments that we could make. So, um, yeah, so I began to focus on the private estates and corporations. And I looked at an area of law that I was just learning about in school called uh, restitution. And essentially what I mentioned earlier today is that a party, uh, the law does not necessarily support the notion that one should benefit from unjust gains. And the way that the law allowed, uh, the way that the law operates is that it would allow you to trace every dollar to its, uh, to its current um, place. You, you could actually cha- trace um, the wealth to um, wherever the money might be today. It might have been a dollar in uh, 1700 and today it may be a million. And, and you, you would be entitled to disgorge some of that wealth. <clears throat> so that's the, that, that's the idea that I moved forward with. When I graduated from law school, I, um, I started calling up the companies. The first one was Aetna. Uh, Aetna was unique because it was one of the companies that still had the same name that it had back in the 1800s when they were engaged in the business of of writing slave policies. And essentially what they did was they wrote slave policies so, on the lives so, of... So uh, we'll get into Aetna for you know, a little while, but just tell us some more about your, you know, your um, development from becoming a lawyer, that kind of thing. And then we'll get into Aetna in a little while, I promise you. Sorry. Right. Well, basically that's where I am at this point. Uh, you know, my focus was on uh, of trying to develop this case. Um, corporations were the focus. Um, and, um, yeah, I mean, I, I actually have never, uh, actually practiced law, believe it or not. My, my practice in law has been developing these cases, conducting the research to, to identify the corporation and, um, and, and, and looking for lawyers to do the litigation. So before you continue, uh, did you do any DNA tests to see if any of these uh, people in the burial ground were related to you by blood? No, no, we weren't engaged in that at all. Okay. Uh, not at that point. The DNA research that we um, that we do is um, something that came years later after the lawsuits were filed, um, because uh, I would say probably around two thousand and four. The, uh, there, there became the possibility for private citizens to do DNA testing. And uh, we absolutely took advantage of that opportunity. But we used those, that, uh, those tests for a case that we filed based on genocide compensation, not slavery reparations. It's a little bit of a different concept, but, uh, but that, that, that's where the DNA testing 
became uh, significant to us. So your quest for reparations started with Aetna in, during Black History Month in the year 2000. Exactly. So continue, exactly. continue along that line, please. Right. So what happened is we, 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 I called them up and I asked them about the, I asked them for copies of the slave policies. I wanted to really see one. I had learned they existed from a book um, called Black Genealogy by Charles Bloxon, um, but I had never seen one. And, and so they, uh, their, their um, archivist sent me a package that included some Edna policies and some policy materials that belong to other companies. I actually traced some of those other materials to other companies, that, including banks. So, um, you know, you might have been an insurance company back in the 1800s, but today you're a major bank, and one of those banks was JP, is J.P. Morgan Chase, okay? Um, uh, so they said that they would pay something and uh i had the media involved because i wanted them to cover the story um but also i wanted them to cover me because i wanted to be sure that my request to Aetna was 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 not um that it was as clear as possible that this was a, a request essentially a demand for them to create a trust fund to benefit the descendants of enslaved africans um and that was the focus in any case, they said they would do something, and then when the story broke, they backed up and they said, oh, we are going to um, continue with our university and college scholarships for black, uh, for black students. And as far as I know to this day, they have done nothing new, okay? Nothing new. I mean, as far as I'm concerned, with all of the progress that we have made with companies, because some companies actually did uh, provide some nominal Payments of reparations. So are you saying Edna uh, didn't do anything new? So are you saying after twenty-two years, Edna has done nothing in terms of reparations for slavery, which they benefited exactly. from? Exactly, exactly. There, there are quite a number of companies that have done nothing. There are a handful that have done, have done, have made nominal payments. When I say nominal, I mean uh, maybe they gave five million dollars to a scholarship fund. And uh, no, we don't, we don't know. They're completely in control of whatever it is that they're doing. So we don't know who they gave scholarships to, yes. if they ever gave anything. Yes, I, mean, um, I, I promise yeah, I'll get so to, is, to that as well. But what I'm asking mm-hmm. is that after 22 years this month, Aetna has done nothing in terms of them benefiting from slavery? Exactly. So, so can you do anything in the courts to force them to pay? I think there's a lot that can be done. Um, it just has to be done. Um, and once again, if I, if I can just explain to you what the progress was with our litigation, you can get a clear idea of where we are in this, in this battle. With respect to um, the companies, right after the story about Edna's policies broke, there was a law introduced. Uh, the story broke in February of, 20, uh, of 2000. By March of 2000, Senator Tom Hayden of California introduced a bill uh, called the Aetna Bill. It later was changed to the Slavery Era Disclosure uh, uh, Bill, requiring that 
insurance companies that do business in California report on their role in slavery. Now, that particular law was picked up around the country by municipalities and some other states uh, where they also required not just insurance companies, but any company doing business wanting to do a business with the with the with the municipality um, would have to report on their role in slavery and provide the names of enslaved people. Lots of documentation. And part of the reason for this law was in part to help us with the effort that we were pursuing to get them to pay reparations. The other part of it was there were a lot of genealogists that had no access to these records. And they wanted to be able to, the states and municipalities wanted to make it possible for us to be able to find ourselves. Um, so this is part of this, this quest, this genealogy request, this, this, this effort to bring our families back together and to learn to find, who, uh, find us wherever we are in this country. So we, we, that, this is 2000. So the law passed in October of 2000. And by 2002, um, we filed lawsuits, okay? Um, uh, we, there were lawsuits filed around the country, probably about six different cases. They were consolidated in Chicago. And uh, there were about 20 companies included. Ultimately, they, the, they, that was reduced because some companies went out of business. But there were different types of companies. You had the insurance companies. You had uh, textile, one textile company. You had um, tobacco, uh, railroad, and um, what else? I, I, okay, I, I might have mentioned banks, right? Yes, it did. So this nice variety of companies. And um, we... We, the lower court, and I'm just going to explain this to you because it's really critical. The lower court, first of all, the court was a very pro-business court. The district there in Chicago is very conservative and pro-business. So the lower court judge, Norgal, um, basically dismissed our case. We, we had a, a variety of plaintiffs. Some of them were biological sons and daughters of slaves. Some of them were actually enslaved. That's how close we are to slavery. Some of the plaintiffs that were alive had been held in slavery. Okay. Um, and, uh, and then some of them were like me. My, my, my great-great-greats were enslaved. So the court, we, we appealed, and the appeals court gave us a different holding. The appeals court reversed a lot of the lower court's decision, remanded the cases, meaning they sent the cases back, and the biological sons and daughters of slaves and the people who were enslaved were able to move forward with their claims in that court. There were other claims, but there were two types of claims. Some of them were demanding reparations because there was a crime against humanity committed that we were in, that our ancestors were enslaved. And that we, as the descendants of slaves, continue to suffer from the vestiges of slavery, discrimination in every aspect of our lives, and so on and so forth. These types of, of injustices that we continue to suffer from. Some of the claims were consumer fraud claims, because all of us were consumers of these various companies. And many of them, when confronted with the request for information about their role in slavery, lied and said they did not play a role in slavery. And this is one of the reasons why it was important to have the media involved. They would have interviews with reporters and straight up lie about their role in slavery. Now, those claims on the appeal court, the court 
made, made it very clear. This is where we set precedence, and this is how we won a major part of this case, and it's historical. Um, what the court held, essentially, is that a company that lies about its role in slavery in order to retain customers is guilty of fraud. It's, it's liable under fraud, okay? So, so- and so... Yeah, so that so that's that's the precedent the precedence that we have now, and we are absolutely planning to continue moving forward with litigation because believe it or not, companies are still lying about their role in slavery. Even some of the companies that were in the litigation. So, uh, as today the twenty second anniversary of your filing this um, lawsuit against Aetna. What is the situation today? Are you planning further actions against them? Against Edna in particular? Yes. Well, you know what? Edna is not the, the primary company that we're focusing on right now. But uh, certainly we have expectations from Edna, uh, along with every other company that were plaintiffs, in, I mean, that were defendants in the case, and many more that we did not have in the litigation. And let me explain to you exactly what I mean. Your neighboring state, Rhode Island, um, you may know, was essentially the one of the points on the triangular slave trade. Um, and so Rhode Island has uh, many, uh, it was where most of the slave traders operating in the United States came from. That was the major slave trading state. And interestingly, in spite of the fact that there was this uh, a law that prohibited the slave trade, the Rhode Island traders continued with their business. Okay, now, helping them with this business was a bank that the slave traders themselves founded. That bank was called the Providence Bank of Rhode Island. It was founded by John Brown, who is the same person that founded uh, uh, Brown University. Uh, John Brown uh, had many other of his slave trading buddies serving as shareholders in the bank. And what we found is documentation showing that they actually used the bank for slave trading. Now, we can see at least 28 slave trading voyages that we have primary documents for. We have actual ledger books showing what was paid into a fund that was held by the bank for the slave traders to engage in their slave trading, their their tariffs and duties, and so on and so forth. We also have, with that, documents from the Transatlantic Slave Trade Database showing how many Africans were enslaved by which ship coming from Rhode Island, matching matching their ledger books now, and where they were brought to around the world, because they weren't all brought here. In fact, they mostly were not brought to the United States. Some were, but most of them were not, because uh, these slave traders were prohibited from engaging in the slave trade. So they basically were engaged in fraudulent activity. The state didn't know, or pretended they didn't know that they were engaged in the slave trade. Of course, because they they are the owners of the bank, they, of course, know they're bringing slave trade money to the bank. Bottom line is that there were there were pe- penalties that they were supposed to suffer from um, that they they were able to avoid because they had a very I would say mobster operation their their style was very mobster very gangster um, they literally would 
beat up anyone who tried to get, intervene with their slave trading. If you were going to try to uh, bring them to court, they, they were strong on them. So uh, that's part of it. That's part of it. But bottom line is this. What we've, we've crunched the numbers. They would, they would have had to pay per person enslaved illegally per ship enslaved illegally. Now, that's for the state law. There was also a federal law that prohibited uh, folks from engaging in the transatlantic slave trade unless they were bringing them from Africa directly to the United States. Now, because these Rhode Island slave traders were distorting their activity, they couldn't bring them, they couldn't report it to the state. They brought the slaves to other countries. So that violated the U.S. law. So with the U.S. law, there was a penalty per ship, per person enslaved illegally. Uh, and so that's another, another, uh, another uh, bit added on to their, their debt. Bottom line is, when we crunch the numbers, Today's value, it adds up to $35 billion, and that is only for the 28 voyages that we were able to get primary records for. There are hundreds of voyages, thousands of Africans enslaved illegally. We can see them in the database. We just haven't been able to collect the primary records for those people. So what we're talking about is some upwards of $350 billion is what they owe for illegally enslaving us. Indeed, over 27 uh, voyages through the Middle Passage. You're right. listening. Right, that was 28, 28 voyages. Once again, I say we have the primary records for 28 voyages, and that amounts to $35 billion that they owe in fines for illegally enslaving us, bringing us to the, the Caribbean, South America, and also some were brought to, uh, to the southern states. Uh, you know, but but uh, but the, the large amount got to the Caribbean. You're listening to What's Your Point on WPKN Radio. My guest is Deidre Farmer-Pellman, legal strategist, founder and executive director of the Restitution Study Group and co-chair of the Organization of Tribal Unity, OTU, an institution that unites families separated by the transatlantic slave trade. I am Garnet Ankland. We are discussing the case for reparations for slavery. And uh, Deidre, what form you think reparations should take in terms of compensation? Is it monetary? Is it community service? What, what, what are your thoughts on that? Well, I think um, <clears throat> you have to look at what people need. Um, a lot of folks need money. Okay. Um, I'll give you an example of uh, a, a university that we uh, ex- we researched and, and, and approached about their connection to slavery, Brown University. We wrote them a letter in 2001 um, letting them know of their connection to John Brown and his legacy of slave trading. And we gave them all of the slave trading voyages from John Brown and let them know some of this money was used to establish a school. You need to do something. Create legacy scholarships create some kind of uh, way to compensate uh, or make, uh, make education available to descendants of enslaved Africans. They put together um, a committee and uh, uh, studied slavery, and maybe by 2000, studied their role in slavery, and by 2006, they issued a report. They reached out to us, some of their students, doing interviews. They wanted to know what, would we, what, 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 should, what should, should they do. I felt 
they should, you know, create opportunity, educational opportunities for folks at the school um, uh, because it's, it's, a, it's a great school. It's an Ivy League. Um, what they decided to do was to create an endowment. So they, they established what I've been told is a $100 million endowment that no one seems to know anything about today. A $100 million endowment. And what they said they would do was to, to give money from that endowment to historically black colleges and universities. Okay. There's no, there's no accountability. I have, we have no idea what it is that they actually have done. In fact, I'm, their students today are struggling to gather, uh, gather up money from students to pay reparations. And, uh, you know, th- th- they don't seem to be aware of the fact that there was a $100 million endowment uh, that it should be sitting there at the school. So, you're talking um, about Brown University in, in Rhode Island? That's Brown University in Rhode Island. So, so, so university scholarships, academic opportunities is one. Banks can do a lot of things. You know, and let me just, I, I, want, I don't want, I want, I want folks to know who these companies are. Just, I just want to name a few of them. Some of the banks. Flea Boston Financial Corporation is now Bank of America. Brown Brothers, and, and let me just say, Providence Bank of Rhode Island became Fleet Boston, and Fleet was the defendant in the case. Bank of America is the company now. Brown Brothers Harriman, Lehman Brothers, J.P. Morgan Chase. Some of those companies don't exist anymore. Um, Aetna Incorporated, New York Life Insurance, Southern Mutual Insurance, AIG, Lloyds of London, CSX, Union Pacific, Canadian National Railway, Norfolk Southern, R.J. Reynolds Tobacco Company, Brown and Williamson, Leggett Group, Lowe's Corporation. Now, let me just tell you some of the things that these companies, other things these companies can do. They can, the most important thing they can do is just give us money and let us do what we need to do with the money. Whether it be um, giving some folks cash payments because that's what they need. Um, It might be uh, investing for the community, buying up some of the uh, blighted uh, property and restoring it to create housing for us, creating health opportunities, um, creating businesses. Uh, Some banks can give no interest loans to to folks or zero down uh, uh, mortgages for people who are going to buy. Um, You know, so there's there's so that the, 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 the scope of what can be done is great. It's, it's, you know, it's the, the only limit is our creativity. So, you know, it's all about what we need. Okay. And mm-hmm. uh, you, you, earlier you mentioned that some of these people have not paid up. Your, your research linking J.P. Morgan Chase Bank to slavery caused the bank to make a public apology and in January 2005 committed to pay $5 million over a five-year period in, school, in college scholarships to descendants of slaves residing in the state of Louisiana. Are you able to report whether these scholarships were given? Well, you know, I cannot. And if you try to trace the scholarship fund online, you will end up in, uh, in, in lost in cyberspace, okay? Because there's, you know, there's just nowhere to, it just seems to be untraceable. Okay, Um, so no, it's not clear who ever got a scholarship uh, or um, or whether or not they're still giving them or, you know, or whether or not they ever did anything. So there's no Um, way because they they and this is I'm going to say this is one of the challenges we have as a community. We 
have a difficult time working together, and that benefits these companies and others who owe us. If we can all just sit down at a table together uh, as a community and move forward together, then we, we can ensure that a company that makes this kind of pledge doesn't, you know, play games and, and, and escape, you know, paying their debt. Uh, and same thing with Brown University. We don't know what they're doing with that $100 million endowment. So you know, that, we don't know if they're now uh, uh, funding the, the men's basketball team or, you know, or, or covering for some of the legacy scholarships for white students who are at the school. So is there any way to hold those uh, uh, at Brown University accountable for all of this? And also uh, Chase Bank, are you able to hold their feet to the fire to get them to pay up all these monies that they promised? Well, let promised? me just say this. I'm going to tell you that I'm a little bit more hopeful because I see a new, uh, a new breed of activism within our community. Uh, I see uh, some fairly uncompromising, uh, internet-savvy young people coming up in this struggle who are clearly uncompromising. And so, yes, I'm very optimistic. Mm -hmm. I'm actually beginning to work with them. And I, I am very optimistic that we're going to see reparations soon and, uh, in a real way. You, you mm -hmm. love the, the average black person on the street would see, because I've spoken to some of them, that, you know, I don't need any reparations on slavery. There's nobody owes me anything. I'll work for what I have or what I want. What would you say to that person? Well, you know, that's, they don't need, you know, it's not everyone that's going to need to, to receive anything. And that's okay. I mean, listen, folks are entitled to whatever they believe. But I can assure you one thing, that if there's a check for them, they're going to cash it, okay? <laughs> that's, that's real. But no, I mean, it's, 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 a, it's a matter of personal choice. Just because they don't want it doesn't mean that the companies don't owe it. You know, and if they don't need it, believe me, Someone else does. Uh, and so uh, that's, that's, the, that's the issue. And uh, something a little different, but, same, but similar to what we're talking about here. You know, people usually speak of their appreciation and, and respect for the principles on which the United States were built. And uh, on Friday, during her acceptance speech as Associate uh, Justice nominee, Judge Ketanji Brown-Jackson repeated that same phrase about the, 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 the principles on which this country was built. As far as I know, this nation was built on slave labor. Your thoughts? Yeah, well, you know what? There's some core ideas that the nation was built on and, and they did not get, they, not everyone benefited from them, unfortunately. Uh, and I'm certain that she wasn't speaking of every idea But the general notion that folks should be able to live, you know, uh, free, you know, free speech, uh, you know, free expression, you know, uh, uh, to live with, uh, uh, be, to, with the, to have the ability to associate free association. So, so these are great. These are noble ideas. The, the idea of uh, democracy, you know, if you're allowed to be someone to exercise those rights, the ideas are wonderful. So slavery was a heinous crime against humanity. People forcibly 
taken from their homeland to toil in faraway lands. Many died during the Middle Passage journey. What do you think those huge corporation, corporations which benefited from slave labor so reluctant to compensate descendants of those who were enslaved? Well, you know, one of the problems is, um, you know, uh, descendants of enslaved Africans, black people to this day are stigmatized because of our enslavement. And, um, and so many find it hard to recognize us uh, as folks worthy of the same level of humanity as other people. Most recently, we uh, issued an open letter to the president, uh, Joe Biden, asking him to utilize a law that he carried through the Senate that's now the law of the land. It's called the Proxmire Act. It's the Genocide Convention Implementation Act. And it actually holds parties accountable for genocide committed against people uh, in this country. Yes, I have a copy um, of it right here in front of me. Yeah, please go ahead. Right, right, right. And, um, and so, you know, this is about the killing of members of a group, causing serious bodily injury to members of that group, causing permanent impairment of mental faculties of members of that group through drugs, torture, or similar, sub, uh, similar techniques, subject the group to conditions of life that are intended to cause the physical destruction of the group in whole or in part, imposes measures intended to prevent births within the group, transfers by force children of the group to another group. I mean, these are our experiences in this country to this very day. This is the Genocide Prevention, uh, the Genocide Convention Implementation Act. And what we want the president to do is to, to allow us to use this law to pursue parties who have caused these injuries to us and continue to cause these injuries to us. Also, just, to, just so you know, the punishment, it can, can be anywhere from five to 20 years in prison and fines between a half a million to a million dollars per injury. Okay. This is really important because so, uh, have you heard from the president? Have you received a response? No, no, we haven't heard. Oh, and, and did we expect to hear from the president? No. But do we think that, that the message was uh, heard? Absolutely. We, we feel very confident about that. Um, and it, it was not just sent to the president. It was sent to the Department of Justice. Because what we want is this, this law would be helpful not just in dealing with what we call genocide compensation. And I want to talk a little bit about some, some aspects of genocide that we don't realize we suffer from. Um, but it's genocide compensation, uh, uh, but also, um, I'm sorry, for this, this law can be used for circumstances where, for example, African people are subjected to police brutality and, uh, 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 and murder by police and by uh, militia groups. You know, this is a part, this is a kind of genocide that has been going on from the time they snatched us from Africa. This is, this is a, a unique kind of treatment that descendants of enslaved Africans are subjected to. Most of us don't recognize that we have not been given the humanity of being considered victims of genocide. We recognize these kinds of acts committed against other people in other countries all the time. We're talking about China, you know, Afghanistan. We're talking about these crimes being committed everywhere as a nation. But the, but right here in this country, these things happen to black people every day. But we don't call it genocide. 
But that's what it is. And we have a law that is designed to protect us. It's a criminal law. And so the Department of Justice has to utilize it. That's Under, one side of it. And uh, we want to get to your, your, your situation here. What is the restitution study group of which you are founder and executive director? Well, this is what I want to say about the restitution study group. I mean, we do this research. One of the things that we do uh, is we do genocide, we do DNA testing. And our goal with the DNA testing is to repair, self-repair, this one aspect of genocide that many of us don't realize we suffer from. Most descendants of enslaved Africans living in the diaspora have no idea of our African ethnic or national groups. You might even call it the kingdoms that we come from in Africa. Well, we are part of kingdoms in Africa. We have just deliberately been separated from it, and those identities have been deliberately destroyed. I'll give you an example. When we were brought over in these slave ships, they listed us as cargo and would not actually name us in uh, the, the, the shipping records. We had names. We had tribal identities. But none of that information was retained because we were always supposed to be destroyed. Our, our connection to our homelands was supposed to be destroyed. That's the initial genocide. It was initially committed against our ancestors, but we actually still are direct uh, uh, victims because today we don't know who we are. And so the restitution study group, what we do is, we have, um, amongst other things, by the way, we, uh, we have a DNA program where we test African nationals. We're yes. all over Africa. We're testing. about running out of time, but I want you to tell us where can we find the restitution group if someone is interested in following you. Right. Well, you can go online to our website. It's uh, rsgincorp.org, rsgincorp, I-N-C-O-R-P, dot org. And you can actually reach out to us for us to help you to find your family in Africa so that you will know which country you are from, who are your actual family members, and you can reconnect with them today. In addition, tell us a little about your work with the Organization of Tribal Unity, OTU. Well, this, this particular DNA project, that is specifically what we focus on. The OTU is the wing of the restitution study group that does the DNA testing. And co-chair of that is a well-known genealogist, Antoinette Harrell. Um, we, she's well-known as the penis detective. You can look her up online, but we work together trying to reconnect families. So, uh, Deidre... Farmer Pellman, this must be the first of a series of discussions we'll have on this topic. It's very interesting, and I think people should know whether you're black or white, whatever you are, people should know about this. And um, so we have so many more questions, but time wouldn't permit us to continue. So again, thank you so much for being a part of the show on this penultimate penultimate day of Black History Month, and thanks again for doing it. Oh, my pleasure, and thank you so much for having me. You are so welcome. Bye. Bye-bye. Uh, you've been listening to a conversation with Deidre Farmer-Pellman, legal strategist, founder and executive director of the Restitution Study Group and co-chair of the Organization of Tribal Unity, OTU, an institution that unites families separated by the transatlantic slave trade. I am Garnet Anker. We discussed 
a case for reparations for slavery on this penultimate day of Black History Month. And uh, again, uh, I'll be next inside What's Your Point on March 13 at 9 a.m. Eastern Time. And uh, before that, at 7 for Solidarity. So thanks again for listening and have a wonderful day. This has been What's Your Point? Support for WPKN comes from the Connecticut Guitar Festival presenting its fifth annual celebration of the people's instrument online and in person at the Westport Public Library. Featuring live concerts, international artists, educational opportunities, and exhibits. Beginning Friday, March 11th through Sunday, March 13th. Classical, rock, folk, world, and jazz. Something for everyone. More details available at ConnecticutGuitarFestival.com. This is FC Buzz on WPKN Radio. A brief look at what's happening around Fairfield County. This is David Green with the Cultural Alliance of Fairfield County and our weekly selection from FC Buzz Events, the best guide to arts and culture in coastal Fairfield County. Find it at culturalalliancefc.org. Sunday, 11 a.m. at the Westport Library, composer Barbara Baclar-Rice, in collaboration with writer Nancy Baclayan-Tobin, 
present songs and commentary from their original collaboration, My Millionaire, The Currency of Love, an original performance and conversation. This musical, based on Mark Twain's short story, The Million Pound Banknote, explores the themes of money and power and how people behave toward those who possess them. Book and lyrics by Nancy Beclean Tobin, music by Barbara Backler Rice, and musical direction by Chris Coogan. Sunday, 3 o'clock, the Sacred Heart University Orchestra will present a celebration of black composers in honor of Black History Month. This is an evening of classical music to benefit the St. John's Family Center in Bridgeport, with a program that includes works by Florence Price, Christopher Ducasse, Joseph Bologna de Saint-Georges, and more. Sunday at 2, come to the Ridgefield Library to hear a bluegrass performance, led by one of the country's premier contemporary bluegrass mandolinists. The Jacob Joliffe Band is a rotating quartet of some of the most virtuosic and innovative young acoustic pickers in the country, including Alex Hargreaves on fiddle. Considered one of the best improvising violinists in the world, Hargreaves is the winner of the Grandmasters Fiddle Championship and a regular member of Chris Feely's Live From Here Band. Sunday at 3 at the First Presbyterian Church of New Canaan, Stamford Symphony presents a Beethoven and Florence Price chamber concert. Join the Stamford Symphony's String Quartet, celebrating two examples of Beethoven's string writing, his trio, Opus 18, and his quartet, Opus 18, Number 3, on either side of a unique piece by African-American Florence Price, whose recently discovered works for violin demonstrate her gift for sumptuous harmonies, soaring lyricism, and references to spirituals and juba dances. Sunday at 3, Fairfield University's Quick Center for the Arts presents the husband and wife duo Stephanie Trick and Paolo Aldrigi in classic jazz on two pianos. Enjoy their fresh takes on classics from the stride piano, ragtime, and boogie-woogie repertoires, as well as familiar favorites of the swing era, classical Hollywood cinema, and the golden age of Broadway. Blending impeccable technique with humor and showmanship, Trip and Alderigi are considered the most engaging piano duo touring today. For details on these and hundreds more events, check FC Buzz Events at culturalalliancefc.org. This was FC Buzz on WPKN Radio. What can I say about WPKN? I love the music. It's music you can't hear on any other station. All genres, good stuff. The hosts very knowledgeable. The only thing I can't figure is their schedule. You know, like, when are they playing what? But hey, that's the beauty of listening to this station. You just tune in and discover something you haven't heard before. Yeah, 89.5 WPKN Bridgeport. It's like serendipity on your dial. 